0: Howdy, howdy. Senior Editor Mackenzie Taylor here on our weekly Roundup podcast. This week, the team discusses a response from the Texas military addressing accusations levied at the department, how Texas suppressor manufacturers are responding to a new state law meant to exempt them from federal regulation, candidates refusing an endorsement from an advocacy group, Abbott and Patrick throwing their weight behind reconsideration of a ruling on the GOP's election reform bill, an FBI raid of a congressman's home, the inside scoop on an abortion ban proposal in Abilene, the Dallas man who provided the Colleyville terrorist with his gun being charged with a federal crime, Texas Democrats calling for an end to Operation Lone Star at the border, drama in Austin's Office of Police Oversight, the Attorney General suing Google, again, and a retiring Republican senator making waves with his statements in a deposition. Thanks for listening, folks, and enjoy this episode. Why hello, folks. Mackenzie Taylor here with Brad Johnson, Daniel Friend, Hayden Sparks, and Isaiah Mitchell. What, Hayden? Just looked at me like I got somebody's name wrong.
1: Why hello? What is this? It's howdy. I know.
0: <laughs> well, because in the intro to the podcast, I usually say howdy, so I okay. stop myself.
2: Yeah, but then you usually you don't say need howdy excessive again. howdies. It's just like howdy, howdy.
0: Yes, that's true. Exactly.
2: I could go back and. Oh, like, instead
0: of howdy, folks? Or what are you saying?
2: I'm just saying you say howdy multiple times, and now you're diverging from that tradition. Correct. At least she's but not saying good stuff anymore.
0: <laughs> Watch me say it multiple times this podcast. Mm-hmm. I try really hard. Usually I'll say it like once instead of every single ending to a segment.
2: Mm-hmm. I
0: still, it's, it's still in my vocabulary. I think I have a clip
2: of it. I could just like drop it in after every mm. little break.
0: Well, I think at the end of the year, Daniel, or maybe even six months through, we should do a blooper reel or even just a... A funny little montage and publish that that'd be fun
2: Hmm.
0: well it might just be fun for us
2: maybe yeah it might not be fun for you (laughs)
0: yeah that's true a lot of them a lot of them are probably
1: inside jokes that no general public would not know because we're weird we so
0: (laughs) we are but every week daniel cuts out at least a clip or two and shares it with the rest of our team yeah Sometimes her, I share them. Sometimes yeah.
2: I keep them for myself.
0: See that's the problem. I know that there's a folder of these things that you could very easily splice together and publish and that could be entertaining or problematic. I'm unsure of, of which of that might
2: I actually need to like get it end. organized in a folder because right now I just like save the clips to like one giant folder and it's just it's messy.
0: Got it. Well organization is 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 King, as I could tell you, as my yeah. planner has arrived in the mail, I am officially using my planner. I, I wondered if sure you would mention your planner. Thank you. I wanted to make sure everyone knew that I am in fact um, planning my life. With all the inspirational again. quotes in it, it in that is head. exactly the opposite of what is true. No inspirational quotes whatsoever.
2: Hmm. Not yet. You'll put them in there.
0: No. Here's the thing. I will. I will. I will guard my planner from all of you because I could see you guys <laughs> handwriting inspiration. I could see Hayden handwriting <laughs> inspirational quotes. Just
1: remember, <laughs> let go and let God. <laughs>
0: was so quick okay well on that note we're going to jump into the news hayden and since you had such an inspirational quote to share with our (laughs) listeners and me we'll start with you let's talk about the texas military department what uh were the original complaints levied against the department um that spurred a response from the texas military department
1: Well, they were serious accusations because they involved suicide deaths, which are always tragic. And they stemmed in large part from reports from the Army Times and a press conference that was hosted by GOP gubernatorial candidate Alan West with former Command Sergeant Major Jason Featherston, who was a senior enlisted advisor in the Guard. They criticized the rapid deployments on Operation Lone Star, the ostensible denial systemically of hardship requests, and the apparent lack of necessary equipment, which they all contended had contributed to morale problems that culminated in the four suicide deaths and another attempted suicide. So the suicide deaths were a large part of the criticisms of the handling of Operation Lone Star. They also detailed paycheck problems that are not disputed. The TMD, the Texas Military Department, has acknowledged that there were pay stub problems. However, they have disputed some of the other claims that have been made about paychecks being denied entirely. But what's important to remember about the nature of these criticisms is they are bipartisan. Uh, Beto O'Rourke, of course, who's a Democrat uh, contending for the governor's mansion has criticized Abbott on this point, as well as West and Don Huffines. So these are bipartisan criticisms as uh, the primary day contest gets closer and Operation Lone Star has been criticized overall as a political stunt by Abbott. Of course, there have been numerous tactical benefits to Operation Lone Star, but the nature of of the latest uh, condemnation has been the way Major General Tracy Norris and Governor Abbott have been running the show. So while West and Huffines may support stronger border security and they may be disagreeing with Operation Lone Star for different reasons than O'Rourke, the common denominator is they are all criticizing Abbott and Major General Tracy Norris. Uh, But it is interesting to note that this operation – received bipartisan support when during the second called session of the state legislature, a bill to provide billions of dollars of additional funding uh, received votes from both Republicans and Democrats. So the criticism of late has been bipartisan, but support for the funding was also bipartisan. So there are a lot of moving parts on this issue.
0: Certainly. Let's talk about who spoke on behalf of the TMD and the highlights of their statement.
1: Colonel Rita Holton is the public affairs officer for the TMD. She gave a detailed and full response to many of the accusations in the media, although she didn't name specific outlets or the specific reports she was referencing. She did one by one go down the list of many of the claims that have been made. She stated with regard to the suicide deaths that only two of the four deaths were by people who were deployed on Operation Lone Star, and she further stated that there's no evidence, those were her words, that they occurred as a result of the denial of hardship requests. And she said there have been 900 hardship requests, 75% of which have been approved. Last year, according to the colonel, there were nine suicide deaths, tragically, out of 22,000 Personnel in the TMD. And she stated that information to place the numbers that we're discussing in perspective. The administrative pay challenges, which is how she referenced the paycheck issues, are being handled through their chain of command and through their paycheck hotline, which she provided for guardsmen to access if they are experiencing pay issues. She said that 75% of the paycheck problems have also been solved and guardsmen who were lacking pay or receiving back pay. And the reason for these paycheck issues is there were more than 10,000 National Guardsmen deployed due to this mission, and they had to be deployed rapidly, according to Colonel Holton, because unlike an overseas disaster or something out of state, where there may be more time to plan, this was happening, uh, the words she used, in our own backyard, end quote, and the federal government's in action, according to her, left the state no choice but to respond by deploying thousands of National Guardsmen. So, they are addressing the administrative pay challenges, according to her statement. And then finally, the, she stated that there are austere environments on the border. And I will say the tone of her comments were that this is something that guardsmen train for, and they are trained to face living conditions that may not be ideal. However, she did concede that there are areas of, of improvement that are being addressed by the chain of command, um, but she did deny that. They're being deprived of necessary equipment, she said ammunition, armored vehicles, all the necessary equipment is being provided. COVID-19 protocols are being followed. That was another point of criticism. And that only 1% of the Texas military department is currently in quarantine for the coronavirus and they're being monitored by medical teams. So, those are some of uh, highlights of some of the problems that have been reported and then Colonel Holton's response.
0: Yeah. So, let's talk about Colonel Holton's specific response to a lot of the reporting that's going on about Operation Lone Star. What did she have to say about media coverage of the operation?
1: Holton condemned what she called irresponsible journalism, specifically with regard to the suicide deaths. She stated that The media ought to respect the privacy of the family members at this time, and the deaths are under investigation, and that investigation process should be allowed to play out. Of course, the statement did not refute many of the problems that have been reported. There are living condition concerns, and many guardsmen have been asked to abandon their civilian lives within days' notice for a mission that is uncertain from their perspective and that they will have to be serving on for possibly a year's period of time. So definitely a difficult situation for anyone to have to face that. Although she did, uh, dispute some of the factual claims and, uh, condemned the fact that many of these outlets were basing these reports on anecdotal information documents that are questionable and according to her and possibly, um, information that is imperfect and incomplete from the texas military department's perspective
0: got it well hayden thank you for following that we'll continue to keep an eye on what's going on there certainly interesting to see the back and forth um, Isaiah, you published a piece this week that um, I think is fascinating, really interesting. We uh, You wrote on this a while ago, a new bill that um, specifically deals with Texas-made suppressors. Let's start there. Remind us real quick what this new law um, does regarding gun silencers and how this legislation works.
3: So since the 30s, the federal government has required people looking to buy suppressors to pay a $200 tax stamp and go through a long registration process. So last year, the legislature passed a law meant to exempt silencers from this regulation if they're made and sold in Texas, kind of a Tenth Amendment principle. It forbids state and local governments from enforcing federal law on these silencers. Um, But before a citizen goes off and starts making these things meant to be exempt, the citizen must provide a written notice to the Attorney General, Ken Paxton, of intent to manufacture exempt suppressors. Then Paxton has to seek a declaration from a federal judge that the law does abide by the Constitution. And the reason they have Paxton kind of test the waters first is because there are other states that have tried this. Uh, Kansas passed a similar law a while back. And afterwards there were these two citizens that thought, Oh great suppressors that we make here and and sell here are, are fine. And so they engaged in a transaction without going through the whole ATF process. And both of them got federal convictions like life altering convictions. And so having Paxton, get a judge, say the law is constitutional first, is kind of a safeguard from, from that happening again. So
0: that's the aim. Talk to us about what suppressor manufacturers have had to say about the law.
3: Well, there are four or five based in Texas, and three of them got back to me, all with fairly negative opinions of the law, ranging from apathy to outright disagreement. The Texas Silencer Company is actually the biggest one in the state. Uh, they have not submitted a letter to the AG of their notice to manufacture maiden Texas suppressors. They don't really have an interest in doing that. Interestingly, they suggested um, that an individual might be better to might be better suited to contact Paxton and, and go through this process than a federal firearms license holder because um, the more the immediate penalty that they would face for going through this process and ignoring the federal process would be losing their license and they'd you know they'd go out of business or whatnot uh, They suggested however that um, I asked him if there's a particular reason why they hadn't attempted to get this process going with Paxton and um, Seth DeSaro with the company told me that, uh, or he suggested that doing so might raise eyebrows at the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco Farms and Explosives ATF who governs this process. And um, I'll try and find word- his words here. Uh, he said, you could possibly catch the attention of somebody in the ATF who would see that as intent to sell a silencers without doing the paperwork. So again, but he says that they haven't clarified to him that, they would respond punitively to just reaching out to the attorney general he's suspicious of it though torrent suppressors got back to me Uh, that company has written to the ag so they were they are interested in manufacturing these made in texas suppressors Um, they however had a negative opinion of the law really more negative um, than the texas silencer company Um, they said that suppressors are governed by federal law not state law the only way we see this getting any traction as if the state issued licenses, which they didn't. Either that or the federal judge would have to impose jail time on ATF agents that violated the state law. So a couple of interesting alternatives that I don't know if the legislature explored, I don't know how workable those would be, Uh, but they went on to say that in either of those cases, the ATF would just revoke the license of any participant, making it then illegal to do business outside the state, and either way, it's basically a no-win situation. The paper the law was written on was far more valuable when it was blank. And by that, uh, the guy that I spoke to from torrent said that all this law has done at this point is have people kind of hunker down and avoid buying suppressors because they think that eventually they'll be able to buy a suppressor in Texas without going through this registration, which is not going to happen anytime soon. The last company that got back to me was dark horse out of Santa Ana.
0: It reminds me of that Katy Perry song from like 2012. Hmm. Anybody know that song? Thank I you. do.
3: I've, I've been to the pool and been to the pool. Yeah. <laughs> who's katie perry
0: <laughs> good question daniel i like how brad <laughs> was the only one who nodded because of course brad would know for a while brad was listening to katie perry radio on spotify on repeat yes for like weeks was. yep i
4: well, just remember no, it, it was weeks it was like
0: no brad it was days. weeks because i have minutes, screenshots minutes. It, was, no, it was longer <laughs> than this it was weeks i guarantee you anyway dark horse isaiah continue. yeah i mean i
3: just remember like at the robert lee pool one year it was that cloud the cloud nine one and then it was dark horse anyway i can't keep it straight more well, importantly, no. good, good, Dark Horse Sons, Company company, um, said that the law wasn't well communicated. They have not written to the AG. Um, the guy that I spoke to from that company mainly objects to trying to change law through the courts, both on principle because he doesn't believe in making law that way. And for more practical reasons, uh, he said that he doesn't want to be a court case. And that's the only way he sees this getting changed is um, through federal courts.
0: Now, has Paxton sought a judgment from a court yet that this law is constitutional?
3: He has not announced that he has, and he did not respond to our inquiry about it. And as I mentioned, uh, at least one of these companies and um, I don't know how many citizens, if any, have submitted this notice of intent to him. The law says that the attorney general shall seek a judgment. That's the exact word. And, uh, the shall out-
0: versus may question in law is always very interesting, and especially when legislators are actually on the floor debating this, right? Is, yes, is someone important. compelled to, or do they have permission to?
3: Right. And um, and so this bill, which went into effect September 1st, uh, says that the Attorney General shall seek this declaration from a federal court. And um, I, I cannot confirm that he hasn't, but he has not announced that he has, and uh, he did not respond to our inquiry about it. So.
0: Well, thank you for covering that, Isaiah. Very interesting stuff and a great piece to read um, in terms of what these manufacturers here in the state are saying. Hayden, back to you. There was a lot of chatter this week about endorsements made from a uh, a group and specifically there was some drama surrounding the acceptance of these endorsements. But let's first talk about the entity. What is the Libra Initiative? Who did they initially endorse and why? The
1: Libra Initiative is an interest group that operates under Americans for Prosperity, which is a nationwide advocacy group with conservative slash libertarian philosophies. And they issued endorsements in Texas Senate races. Former Senator Pete Flores, a Republican of Pleasanton, who is running for Senate District 24, was endorsed by the group as well as state representative tan parker who is a republican of flower mound running in senate district 12 and Mays middleton a republican of wallaceville who is running in the galveston area for state representative for state senate was also received the endorsement of the group they rejected the endorsements prompting a response from the Libra initiative.
0: Yeah. So tell us about this reaction from Flores, Parker, Middleton, um, you know, to these endorsements, what did they have to say? And what was the end result?
1: They roundly rejected them. And two of them went so far as to say that the Libra initiative was not to use their names on campaign materials. Flores and Parker, I believe were the ones who stated that and essentially banned them from mentioning them in their campaigns, even though the Lieber Initiative stated that they had thoroughly researched their records and believed they agreed with their policy positions on key issues and were, in fact, ready to mobilize voters and other resources to help elect these candidates. That goes to how important it was to these candidates to make sure that people understood that they did not agree with these endorsements because of their position on immigration which these three candidates characterized as amnesty or letting people cut in line. Now the Libra initiative is responded and this goes to a broader debate over how do you handle not only keeping people from entering illegally in the first place, but the people who have already entered and perhaps even been here for years and built lives here and have friends and jobs, et cetera. The Libra Initiative said that they do not support the status quo, and they also support a path for legal status for a group that is usually termed dreamers. There has been debate over that term, but essentially the people covered under President Obama's DACA program, which allowed people who arrived here as young children or as minors a path to legal status slash citizenship, depending on the proposal. This was never enacted into federal law, so there have been a variety of different proposals that have put out there. But they the Libra Initiative said they supported that. But that uh, the three Republicans who rejected their endorsements rejected it on the basis of a misunderstanding or a mischaracterization of their position. So this whole fracas was about immigration and whether or not the Libra initiative supports strong border security, which they claim that they do, but these candidates had very different beliefs about the Americans for Prosperity slash Liber Initiative's stance on immigration.
0: Well, Hayden, thank you for that. Certainly some scuttlebutt that we were paying very close attention to, and we'll see how that might influence um, campaigns. There have been candidates who were endorsed by the labor initiative who have not rejected the endorsement. It'll be interesting to see kind of where that line falls and how it affects campaign messaging. Thank you, Hayden. Bradley, we're coming to you. Let's talk about uh, some statewide elected officials. Texas Republicans are largely rallying behind a push uh, for the Court of Criminal Appeals to reconsider a ruling on Texas's election reform bill passed by the GOP this last year, um, specifically about who may prosecute election fraud allegations. Who joined that effort this week?
4: So the top two state elected officials in Texas joined it. Uh, both the governor and lieutenant governor lent their support to the effort that is currently spearheaded by Attorney General, Gen- Attorney General Ken Paxton. And uh, the Republican Party of Texas is also a big, a big player in this um additionally 14 state senators submitted an amicus brief siding with Paxton in his petition for reconsideration well patrick uh, signed on to that amicus brief this week and um you know for the the lieutenant governor to join in um in a dispute involving the criminal court of appeals that's you know that's not insignificant and not only did uh patrick jump in on that so did the governor uh patrick said of course um in announcing this if the court's decision stands certain rogue county and district attorneys will be allowed to turn a blind eye to election fraud and they will have the final say on whether election fraud is prosecuted at all and shortly after Patrick said that, Abbott uh, joined in through a spokesman saying, Texas passed this nation's strongest election integrity law to make it easier to vote and harder to cheat, cracking down on voter fraud. Texas is highest law enforcement officer has the constitutional authority to enforce the, that election integrity law. The Court of Criminal Appeals needs to uphold Texas law and the attorney general's responsibility to defend it. Of course, Abbott was also uh, previously on the Supreme Court of Texas. He is an attorney. And so he has some previous experience in this, but the fact that the top two elected officials in the States are joining on to this is certainly notable.
0: Yeah. And particularly after others have already joined, it's interesting to see these two, is it, particularly in a heated primary, not, not that that specifically would hold any water, right? This is about the office, not the person, mm-hmm. um, on paper, but regardless, this would give attorney general Ken Paxton more, um, more, not, maybe not more power, just restore power that he previously held, um, It'll be interesting. You I mean to if see. this decision
4: were over yes. overturned? Um, well, actually, it's the next section we'll get into that. Yeah. So, um, the Texas Legislature passed the election reform bill that explicitly empowered the AG to prosecute election fraud throughout the states. It says it in the law, um, and then last month, the Court of Criminal Appeals they ruled that only county and district attorneys may prosecute those offenses. And so um, this has a lot of Republicans worried because we've seen, um, they're worried that district attorneys and county attorneys will turn a blind eye to election fraud allegations when they occur. State versus local. Yep. And again, it's the the theme of Texas. and Mm -hmm. um, Something I like to harp on quite a bit. (laughs) Um, But the court of criminal appeals is the highest court in the state on criminal issues and so it's not like this can be appealed to the supreme court of texas this is whatever they decide is final and we'll see where they go especially after this additional pressure but paxton has a he filed a a motion to uh reconsider and so that is where it stands at the moment and we'll see what the court does with that
0: very good. Well, thank you, Bradley. Daniel, we are coming to you. Um, a South Texas Democrat has been in the news um, for some very interesting reasons. Um, talk to us about what is going on with Henry Cuellar's district.
2: Last week, Representative Henry Cuellar, whose district represents uh, San Antonio, and then it stretches down to Laredo, so a lot of South Texas. um It's a a kind of a a competitive seat uh, still, even after redistricting. Um, But Coyier's house was actually raided by the FBI uh, last week in a probe. Uh, The the FBI agents investigated his home and also his campaign office. Um, There's, kind of sparse details about what this FBI investigation was go, uh, uh, actually about. Uh, Cuellar did say, however, that he was going to be cooperating with law enforcement. And then he also re- released a statement later after this has kind of been in the spotlight for a little bit, uh, saying that he he committed no wrongdoing and th- that this investigation will, will show that. Um, but uh, the few details that we do have uh, some sort of an idea about it, it, it apparently has something to do with Azerbaijan, according to one report. How do you uh, say that? Azerbaijan. Got it. Yeah, it's a, it's a country,
0: <laughs> small, tiny
2: little country over near Russia, <clears throat> Turkey, that kind of area.
0: Got it. So, what kind of ties does Queer have to Azerbaijan?
2: Yeah. Did I get it
0: right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Go me. Uh,
2: so he does have uh, quite a bit of involvement with the, the country and some connections there. Uh, he has had several interactions with the ambassador, um, from Azerbaijan. He also, uh, is the, uh, serves as the co-chair to the Azerbaijan Congressional Caucus. Um, so he, he has, he is involved with uh, kind of the lobbying going on, uh, from that country with Congress. Um there's also some controversies that came up in the past in the past decade actually uh that are kind of related to this potentially related to the FBI investigation it could just be something completely unrelated because we're left with no details so we're just kind of parsing together what we do know uh what's connected with Azerbaijan and Henry Quayar uh trying to uh, I know there's a gif out there with a the person with the red string trying to make all the connections it's a little bit what we're doing here just trying to like, figure out yes. Yeah, whatever Jordan it is. Always oh off,
0: I yeah. knew you were going Big to jump on show. that. Oh, I
2: yeah. that. I mean, there's Brad with the cultural reference, or the the actual explanation of the reference I was trying to make. I just know the, the image. So, you're anyways. Doing, you're doing great. So the Red String, uh, there are some controversies in the past uh, with Henry Cuellar and uh, also just other congressmen and Azerbaijan and kind of tangentially connected. Um, So one of those was a congressional trip that was a spotlight of controversy back in 2013, uh, where several members of Congress, including, uh, I believe, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee from Texas, as well as you had South Texas Congressman Ruben Hinojosa who was down, um, I think he was either in the 15th congressional district or the 34th, one of those down there in (laughs) South Texas, um, went on this trip uh, that was sponsored actually by an Azerbaijani uh, oil company, state-owned oil company, Um, but they were not apparently aware that it was being sponsored by this state-owned oil company and they went on this trip and then there was a kind of investigation about like why are these congressmen, you know, going on this trip sponsored by uh, this company that's state owned? So it was a lot of controversy. The House Ethics Committee later uh, cleared the members of any wrongdoing, saying that they acted in good faith and were actually misled about the source of the trip's funding. Um, now, this ties back to Cuellar, uh in a, in a little bit of a way uh, apparently w- actually one of his staffers was apparently on that trip um, but besides that uh, later in another kind of separate uh, controversy that came out in 2015 from a report from USA Today uh, showed that Quare's campaign actually received uh, some several controversial donations that were tied to the uh, Gulen movement which is uh, kind of a radical Islamic movement that's really uh, heavy, heavy in Turkey, but then also Azerbaijan, kind of that that general area um, of the world. It, it is worldwide, but that's where it's kind of uh, biggest, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, Cuellar, along with several other congressmen, uh, received these kind of controversial donations from individuals who, you know, they were making. 35 dollars $40,000 a year, but they were maxing out their federal donations to campaigns. And so there was a lot of questions about, like, why are people donating this much? Are they actually contributing to this? So uh, USA Today did a little bit of a, a probe into that. Um, and one of the individuals who donated to Queer's campaign was a man who later became the president of a Houston-based uh, Turquoise Council of Americans and Eurasians which was actually one of the sponsors of that controversial congressional trip. So there's some connections there with campaign money and Azerbaijan uh, because, again, Azerbaijan is over with Turkey and the Gulen movement. So <laughs> lots of red string here. Yes. Is any of that connected? We'll wait and see. But uh, those are some things in the past that you know could be potentially a part of this investigation uh, that is in line with uh, the... FBI unit or the DOJ unit that is actually doing the investigation, they would do this type of thing of looking into campaign finances and violations of that sort.
0: Okay, well, let's pivot to the more concrete portion of this, which are the political ramifications, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, an FBI raid in a congressman's office or home is going to have some sort of consequence politically. What are we seeing so
2: far? So the big things that we're seeing is obviously this is the now a central issue of the campaign uh, both from Republican side and Democrat side. The interesting thing about this race is Henry Cuellar is one of the most moderate Democrats in Congress and so he has been the target of progressive primary challengers. In the past uh, actually in the last election cycle he had a challenge from Jessica Cisneros a very uh, progressive candidate who had the backing of Elizabeth Warren and other uh, progressive um, just that side of the party.
0: Democrats, yeah.
2: Um, and so she actually ran a pretty close uh primary election back in twenty twenty and now she's running again so uh this is definitely going to become a pivotal issue in the race, so progressives are trying to pull the district now. The district, like I mentioned, is also very competitive in being South Texas. This is the part of the state that is swinging more toward Republicans. And so Republicans are trying to actively try and swing this part of the state. And so you even have on the Republican side, you have uh, several different candidates. Uh, One of note is Cassie Garcia, who's a former Cruz staffer, Ted Cruz staffer, who has the backing of uh, Senator Ted Cruz and is gaining momentum on the Republican primary. So you have this kind of tug of war going on between... Progressives and Republicans already. So you throw in a controversy like this into the mix, and that will create a lot more chaos. Um, So it'll be interesting, you know. Do Democrats say, "Hey, Henry Cuellar is going to lose a challenge because of this FBI probe to Republicans," or does if 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 progressive candidates are successful in kind of ousting him, does that actually make it easier for Republicans to win because you now have? someone who's more progressive on the ballot instead of someone who is more moderate that might reflect the the voting population a little bit more so that'll be interesting to see how things play out there very interesting race
0: yeah certainly well thank you for following that for us and we'll see what we can find out as time goes on um okay isaiah we're coming back to you you have written several um Very interesting in-depth pieces this week and the second we'll talk about on this podcast today has to do with Abilene and its sanctuary city for the unborn movement. We've seen a lot of action go on specifically in West Texas um, with this movement. Talk to us about, um, you know, the citizens of Abilene. They're considering outline abortion within city limits. How does this process work in this city?
3: Uh, Well, for those of y'all who followed the way it went in Lubbock, it's essentially the same deal. Uh, They've been trying for really over a year now to get uh, the city council to consider it, the mayor to consider it. And uh, now that that, those efforts have faltered, they are trying to get it onto a petition where a citywide vote will will pass this ordinance, the proposed ordinance. So according to the Abilene City Charter, proposed ordinances can be submitted to the voters by a petition signed by 10% of the voting population of the last regular municipal election. And uh, I talked to several people involved in this effort. And it's still up in the air whether or not they're going to they're they're trying. Obviously, they're trying to gather signatures for the petition. Yeah. And uh, if they don't get enough to get it on the May ballot in time, then they're going to go for the November ballot. And they're not sure even at this point uh, which one of those they're going to shoot for.
0: Yeah. So talk to us about what insiders are saying about the way city leaders feel about this ordinance, this
3: movement. Well, what's interesting is that um, I, I reached out to Abilene Mayor Anthony Williams uh, a couple times. And um, neither time he got back to me, but some people a bit closer to the situation say that he personally opposes abortion and is pro-life and is curious about the ordinance, but reluctant, reluctant to touch it, to pass it. And um, so one of the, one of his friends, actually a local pastor named Scott Beard is the man leading the initiative to get uh, petition signatures in Abilene. And he, um, I guess, hangs out with Williams all the time. I don't think that's that's the right way to put it, but he's been meeting with Williams a lot lately about, um, you know, this initiative and the petition process and everything and figuring out political stuff, but also talking to him about, um, he, he's been trying to convince him to, you know, again, for over a year now to try and get this on an actual city council agenda. And um, he's, he's called Williams's public science on the issue puzzling but said the mayor has expressed wariness about possible litigation against the city, taking caution from the advice of Abilene city attorney, Stanley Smith. Uh, Mark Lee Dixon is the founder of the Sanctuary Cities for the Unborn Initiative. Abilene would be the 40th, and um, he has traveled to all the other 39 towns in Texas to personally introduce this. He's the guy guy behind the initiative statewide. Um, And he echoed Beard's remarks about the city attorney discouraging the passage of the ordinance in Abilene, despite curiosity on the part of Mayor Williams. Uh, Shannon Thomason is the mayor of Big Spring, another town that passed this a while back. And uh, he says that after Big Spring passed this, uh, Mayor Williams actually called him, curious about the ordinance, and they had a brief conversation about it. Uh, Thomason obviously spoke positively of the ordinance, uh, but said he wouldn't be surprised to learn that Smith opposes it. So... That's yeah. the situation in Abilene with with Mayor Williams.
0: Talk to us about how common it is for city leaders to avoid this proposal in solid Republican areas.
3: Well, um, it's extremely common, actually. And uh, normally, most of the 39 existing so-called sanctuaries in Texas passed their local abortion ban ordinances through the city council. And so it's rare for this, it, or it has been rare for this kind of process to uh, to go this way. And the reason that they went this way in Lubbock and the reason that they're going this way in Abilene and also San Angelo, Lindell and Plainview, the petition route, is because um, city leadership, again, uh, according to people familiar with the situation, mainly because of the advice of city attorneys, has been reluctant to touch these ordinances. And there are obvious reasons why, you know, namely Roe v. Wade and um, you know, they're, they're just reluctant to to think that they can truly outlaw abortion in city limits. It's obviously an upstart, long shot kind of attempt. And we'll get into some legal context behind that here in a little bit. But what's interesting about this phenomenon is that it's taking place in very deep red areas. And so in Lubbock, for example, um, the city council rejected it twice. First after executive session with a law firm and then in an actual city council meeting. But when it went to a general vote, it was passed by almost 64% of the population. If I recall right, it was 63% and some change. So this initiative is very popular in these areas, but is still commonly snubbed by city leadership. And uh, I've reached out to all of the city attorneys that I, I mentioned for these cities in this, art- in this article. Um, none of them got back to me. Obviously what they advise city leadership in the executive session is privileged, so that can't be divulged. And um, the city leaders themselves, the mayors and the city council, are often very reluctant to um, explain their opposition to these ordinances. And so it was, I mean, just as a behind-the-scenes look, it was very difficult to try and um, achieve a degree of balance in this article with regards to support for the ordinance and criticism for it. Yeah. Because city leadership that opposes it in these Republican areas um, has been very quiet about why. Very tight-lipped. Right. And so, for example, in San Angelo, um, they're pursuing the petition process there as well, as I mentioned. And um, that was after they had made a lot of attempts to get it on the city council and there was kind of an 11th hour decision on the city council on october 5th where they're fixing to make a vote on or fi- fixing to take a vote on this ordinance and instead, at the last minute um there was a consultation with the city attorney they went into executive session spoke to the city attorney Teresa james and um came back out and instead agreed by a four to two vote To consider passing a resolution in support of the texas heartbeat act and in support of the right to life afterwards and obviously an ordinance has legal effect and a resolution does not Uh, i talked to the guy that's leading the petition process over there another pastor named ryan buck and uh, the way he characterizes the meeting was that um he had they or that their movement had four council members in san angelo on record supporting them and when they brought up this alternative agenda item the resolution the way he puts it is that a couple of them had this deer in the head let's look they didn't realize how quick it was happening and so two of the counselors that were supportive of the ordinance voted for the proclamation and buck theorizes because they're now like one of them has signed the petition he can't remember if the other one had or not but the other one that may or may not have signed the petition to this point was the one who got it on the city council agenda at first so their support is obvious based on their public actions. And so Buck's theory is that um, there was a hasty process and um, the ordinance was glossed over due to advice of the city attorney, again, um, who also did not get back to me. So the legal context for this um, is important because um, for those who haven't followed this, the sanctuary city process across Texas so far, it would seem obvious why city leaders would be reluctant to pass it. And to a degree that's, you know, it's been... The reason so far in Lubbock and elsewhere when they do speak on this in meetings and such that they're worried about Roe v. Wade and about litigation from protest organizations that could be costly to the city. Uh, Jonathan Mitchell, who is the former Solicitor General of Texas, co-authored these ordinances and has maintained a promise to defend the the cities that adopt them at no cost to the taxpayer. In addition, Lubbock was sued by Planned Parenthood after adopting the ordinance, one at district court. And then the news just came out very recently that Planned Parenthood dropped its case against them in the appellate court, which means that the ordinance is still effective. And so it's weathered that Planned Parenthood suit and another ACLU suit against seven of the cities a little while back that Daniel covered. And so it's got a modest but unbroken record of success in court, which still has not persuaded city leaders, along with, on that same side of the scale, the popularity of the initiative among the general population. And so... But trying to get an explanation why from these city leaders has been um, difficult. Certainly. So.
0: Well, thank you for following that. It really is a story worth reading. I think I think I say that about all our stories, but this is a fascinating story about the inside baseball of all of this sanctuary city for the onboard you know, this movement. And we've covered it from the, the genesis of the movement till now. And you've done a great job of giving readers a little bit of an inside look at what is going on there. So thank you for that. Brad, we're going to come to you. Um, this week we were given an update to the Colleyville hostage situation from a couple weeks ago, talk to us about what happened.
4: So authorities charged Dallas resident Henry Michael Williams for illegal possession of a handgun um, as a convicted felon. He Williams allegedly sold a Taurus G2C pistol to the terrorist Malik Faisal Akram, which Akram then used to take hostage congregation beth israel in collieville obviously that ended after 11 hours luckily all the hostages got out safely and then akram was killed when the fbi stormed the synagogue but the exchange of the weapon was made two days before the attack at and the intersection in south dallas
0: talk to us very quickly about how authorities actually tracked him down
4: Using cell phone records, investigation investigators tied Williams to Akram and, and brought him in for questioning shortly after the standoff ended. At that time, Williams said he recalled meeting a man with a British accent but could not remember his name. Um, Akram, being that British citizen, he is, he is a British citizen. Yeah. He came here two weeks before the attack. Williams was arrested on January 24th for an unrelated outstanding warrant. And while in custody, that is when he confirmed to authorities that he sold Akram that weapon.
0: Fascinating very very fascinating um any other updates on this investigation
4: not a lot of new information out there so far but manchester police have arrested it's in, in england obviously have arrested two men this week in connection with the crime nothing more on that so far
0: well well thank you for that bradley very interesting stuff hayden let's talk more about the border shocker um <laughs> Shocker, shocker. Why have Texas House Democrats asked the U.S. Attorney General and Secretary Mayorkas to shut down Operation Lone Star?
1: Shock of shocks. Texas House (laughs) Democrats... Wrote a letter critical of Abbott. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, they have asked the Attorney General and the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, to shut down Operation Lone Star. They raised several constitutional concerns, including their fears that the procedural rights of illegal aliens are being violated, and that Abbott is encroaching on a federal responsibility by arresting people for trespassing and other state crimes with the express intent of deterring illegal immigration, which they believe is a federal responsibility only and he should not be allowed to do. We discussed Colonel Holton earlier in her statement that the TMD put out. She also stated that 10,000 illegal aliens have been arrested and referred to federal officials and 9,000 deportations can be tied directly to Operation Lone Star. So those are some of the results of Operation Lone Star and why it has drawn the attention of Democrats.
0: Yeah, the ire of these Democrats will be interesting to see what kind of um, determination is made specifically on the constitutionality of that. So, Hayden, thanks for following that for us. Bradley, we're going back to you, man, back to back almost. That's not true. By definition, it was not back-to-back.
4: Yeah. Oh, boy. Words, they I mean, mean things. I
0: need more coffee. Um, okay. Let's talk about the city of Austin. So, the city's Office of Police Oversight was found last month to have abused authority by a third-party arbitrator. And this week, you wrote a piece on the office's director and looked into her past specifically um, in her tenure heading into the department. How did she arrive in this position?
4: So, she took over the OP excuse me, OPO as an interim director in 2018, uh, which was then made permanent months later. And that is the position she currently currently holds. Uh, She previously, however, before she came to Austin, worked at Chicago state university where she was involved in a controversy with professors and between professors and the administration, Muscadin and other administrators tried to shut down a faculty blog that was used to criticize uh, the the university presidents and other administrators in that side of of uh, the university, um, and they tried to shut it down using vague speech codes, something about cyberbullying. Basically, they invented this out of whole cloth just to get get at that uh, that blog and get it shut down. But they were sued by the professors, who eventually won a six hundred fifty thousand dollars settlement. Uh, but during the case, it was discovered. That Muscadine and other, the other admins, including the university president, tried to pressure another employee to file a false sexual harassment claim against one of the professors in the lawsuit. Um, all of this was to try and get rid of that professor. And eventually, she was let go, apparently due to budget cuts made by the state of Illinois. But then she made her way to Austin and began working her way through the city ranks. Eventually, or starting with um, city councilman, former city, city councilman Jimmy Flanagan's office.
0: Got it. Now, since she's taken over this department, there have been allegations of employee mistreatment. Right, that's what no. a lot of the story centers on.
4: Yeah, there's a section on it in there. Um, a group of now four former OPO employees have alleged bullying conduct by, uh, Muscaden during the time, their time at the department. And the alleged conduct includes berating employees for taking a pre-approved vacation, pitting employees against one another and insulting employees. Um, city manager, Spencer Cronk apparently did not, according to the employees did not respond to their appeal. This was made, I think sometime last year or no, it was in 2020, I think, um, Yeah. So that's where that was. Um, There wasn't a lot more detail to that, but um, it's still outstanding.
0: Certainly. Now, the center of all of this is the feud between Muscadine and the police that she's tasked with overseeing, right? The officers themselves. Talk to us about the cliff notes of that section.
4: Yeah. So uh, Muscadine has been confrontational with the police, including exceeding her authority and officer misconduct allegations um, under the labor contract between the Austin police association and the OPO. She, she can field complaints, but not really anything more. There's no investigating involved. That's up to internal affairs in the police department. And so the arbitrator found that she had violated that. Um, additionally, she's, she's really, you know, an activist involved in pushing uh, critical race theory type strategies in the department in, in the larger effort to, quote, reimagine the police department. Um, some of these have included uh, racial sensitivity trainings, both for the police department uh, and its officers, and using city funds to pay community members to attend them. And then when criticized uh, back in 2020, her response was i'm a black woman in austin who's working in police oversight and it's really unfortunate that my credentials and attempt for my reputation to be in question and it really begs the question if i look differently what would happen or if it would happen to anybody else and so that's not really addressing any of these criticisms um I think it's also important to note that these criticisms, all all of them are coming from not just white men. You know, this is this is not um, just strictly you know, black and white, as it were, in this in this situation um, and any of these criticisms levied at Muscadine. So uh, regardless, Kronk has maintained his support for Muscadine in that role Um And she currently remains in the position, but uh, we'll see if that continues
3: going forward.
0: Thank you, Bradley. Isaiah, the attorney general is suing Google once again. What is it this time?
3: So uh, Ken Paxton claims that Google has been violating and continues to violate the, the Texas deceptive trade practices act by harvesting location data of users while misleading users about their ability to turn location tracking off. And so I remember when I had a smartphone and, um, I read about this. One of the reasons why I stopped having a smartphone. <laughs> um, but you can turn off that little location deal. And But then on the internet itself, there are, are websites that still, like if you're using Google Chrome or um, Pixel phone or so forth, right. um, there's still websites that know your location, even though the phone itself is not directly tracked. I'm not explaining this well, but you get the picture. <laughs> and um, so he's sending them on the, the Texas Deceptive Trade Practices Act. TDTPA is what I'm going to call it from now on because I'm bad at speaking. And that... <laughs> is one of Paxton's handiest tools in the box. Um, or not just him, just the Attorney General, the office of the Attorney General. And uh, he has used this before in other high-profile, um, I think we can hazard to say, political lawsuits, um, like against Gritty after the Wonder freeze, uh, and the lawsuit regarding um, that ended in the opioid company settlement. Um, and in a more recent one, against a couple of pharmaceutical companies that he claims have been marketing puberty blockers. And so this is one of the latest uses of this law in uh, one of Paxton's suits.
0: Yeah. And Paxton has sued Google more than once, as we've already alluded to,
3: right? Yeah. Um, So most recently, just um, last week or a couple weeks ago, uh, he sued Google for allegedly running misleading smartphone advertisements. And so um, on iHeartRadio, there were some DJs saying that they had used uh, some Google product. I think it might've been the Pixel phone. Um, I'd have to go back and look at his suit or his original complaint. And uh, But it hadn't actually come out yet. And so he's claiming that that's false advertising because there's no way these DJs could have used it. And so this one was interesting because it's a little bit more substantial. Um, it's not a like a one punctilier event. It's like a, a common longstanding Google practice. Um, and I think more in line with the image that Paxton is trying to build of fighting big tech. This is more of a, a big techie kind of thing to do tracking location and so forth so
0: big techie right i like that
3: it's a it's an adjective
0: it it works it works well well thank you isaiah daniel we're going to come back to you Kel Seliger is back in the news, a retiring state senator that we haven't heard from in just a little while, Um, but he was the lone Republican who voted against the Senate redistricting plan last fall, Um, and he had reason to, according to him. Now, in the ongoing lawsuit against this plan, he was uh, interviewed in a deposition, and a lot of folks are reading it, including you. What are some of the things that he has brought up that are notable in that deposition?
2: So there's a few things that are notable. Uh, The Central part of the deposition, or one of the central parts of the deposition, is actually this declaration that Senator Seliger signed back in November of last year. Um, he actually signed a, a sworn statement uh, that had a lot of different uh, points to it, uh, and notably at the end, he, he did claim that, quote, "...it was obvious to me that the renewed effort to dismantle SD-10 violated the Voting Rights Act and U.S. Constitution." And so a lot of the, the commentary that he has in this deposition is kind of surrounded uh, about that sworn statement. And so some of the interesting things uh, that were kind of brought up in this deposition, uh, that sworn statement, he said, was actually brought to him directly by uh, Senator Beverly Powell. Now, just a little bit of background on the uh, the whole Senate redistricting plan and the, the lawsuit that's going on right now. Uh, Beverly Powell is in Senate District 10, which is t- uh, Tarrant County is where it's anchored. And now it reaches out into some rural counties. Republicans redrew that district uh, in the Senate to favor Republicans so that Republicans can win it back. Um, and so they completely kind of change the the whole district so that republicans would be able to win and that's the centerpiece of the lawsuit to the centerpiece of the the complaints against the senate district plan itself um so beverly powell and some other people are suing to try and change the plan and essentially get it back to what it had been um now that's not really the issue that senator kelselger had with the map um now he he does make that claim uh or he did swear that statement that he believes that it violates the the Voting Rights Act, uh, and he's kind of uh, positioned himself against the redistricting plan, uh, but a lot of the, his basis for that is that uh, he's really complaining about Senate District 31, which is his own district, and that was redrawn uh, also in the Senate, so that several of the panhandle counties up in his West Texas district, uh, and he's from Amarillo, so that he's near the, these panhandle counties, were taken out, and uh, other counties down in the Midland Odessa area were added in. Uh, and he argues that this was done to favor his opponent, uh, Kevin Sparks, who had launched a campaign against him and was running. Uh, Sparks actually got the endorsement f- uh, from former President Donald Trump. Uh, and then not too long after that, after the whole redistricting debacle and the endorsement from Trump, uh, Selger said that he was not going to be seeking re-election. So a lot of drama there, uh, and he's basically blaming the Senate of moving those counties out. To favor sparks, and that was his big problem with the redistricting plan.
0: Is he blaming the Senate, or is he blaming the the, the lieutenant governor? What's yes. his Both. so I <laughs> got mean, it? Okay,
2: his basis he says that uh, Dan Patrick he he believes that Dan Patrick, lieutenant governor, uh, instructed um, Joan Huffman, who is the Senate redistricting chair, uh, to basically redraw the map and in a way that would favor his opponent. Uh, so that is his claim. Um, he d- he doesn't go into too many details about why he believes that's the case, um, but uh, there is certainly no lost love between um, uh, Seliger and, Pac- and Dan Patrick. Yeah. Um, one thing that's interesting in the deposition uh, that uh, kind of ties back to the sworn statement. In the sworn statement, um, he claims that uh, there were several. Uh, Untrue explanations were given uh, for why the lines were drawn in the way that they were drawn, uh, and so is he, what
0: Seliger saying.
2: Yes, so okay. Seliger had had said something along those lines in the said that there were untrue pretextual explanations, so that Huffman and all the other senators who were backing this plan made false statements about like the reason for their plan. And so, in this deposition, uh, he's asked by uh, one of the attorneys. You know, what, is, what district is at play here? Um, like, what what are the reasons the untrue pretextual explanations that were given? Um, and he said, what lines, the, the attorney asked, what lines do you believe were drawn with untrue explanations? And Selger says, oh, the lines in Senate District 31. So he's not saying that it's Senate District 10, which is really the question of a lawsuit. He's saying it was his his district, Senate District 31, uh, that were given the, the false explanations as to why they were changed. Because, again, he believes it is drawn from a political motivation to oust him rather than um, changing it for the from a, a perspective of like agricultural and uh, oil and gas perspective, Got which it. is kind of the explanation that the Senate gave.
0: Very, very interesting.
2: So, and there's a lot of other very interesting things in here.
0: Yeah, too. if you're just a political nerd and you want some juice, go read this deposition. It's yeah. kind of fun
2: some juice
0: some juice that's right okay it's very juicy thank you daniel for that um well one thing we do a lot in this office is argue now i won't say that um it's unhealthy whatsoever i think it's just unhealthy debate um unless you're isaiah then he would say it's very unhealthy and it is borderline unhealthy sometimes i would agree no it's not (laughs) it's always unhealthy
4: he's arguing with you
0: Oh, my gosh. I am so dense. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so stupid. Oh, my
2: gosh. Well, you should, given your perspective on some things.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about those perspectives, shall we? <laughs> let's just how just how is how about those how perspectives. Lord in heaven. <laughs> I cannot win. Um... But I will say one thing that we do often is arguing in the office about topics we're going to talk about on the podcast. And then we don't have as much ammunition once we actually have mics in front of our faces. And today, Daniel and I nipped that in the bud. I think we did well. I get to go see Hamilton this weekend. The musical. Very excited. Thrilled. Purchased the tickets prior to COVID and finally get to see it like two and a half years after I purchased these tickets. It's going to be awesome. I told Daniel this. And his immediate response was what, Daniel?
2: I don't remember. Yeah. you have to. You'll have to
0: come up with something Well, i, I think i was
2: confused <laughs> because i didn't know like what you're referring to with hamilton
0: oh yeah you thought maybe i was going out to yeah the, the hamilton like a texas place called hamilton. Yeah. yes which is not the case um i'm going to the play because the, the play okay, was such, already... the
2: play was such a long time ago that like i didn't know that was still a thing that people were going to go see or it was
0: like it was viral and it yeah. took over popular culture so yes. long ago everybody yes.
2: was listening to like the same stupid songs from the play wow yeah you
0: really are going for the dracula i look you are throwing around the word stupid like it's going out of style
3: <laughs> sure yeah that's what i'm, I'm just waiting on like an explanation from both of you for, yeah you well, are going to talk i mean
0: yeah what's what, what's your point daniel you you hate hamilton
3: i think it's way overrated
2: it's like
0: the play is overrated the musical's overrated or the founding <laughs> fathers is overrated
2: or both both i think the, the well I, I think my opinion on musicals is probably less informed because I just.
0: Certainly. I, it's I not your don't.
2: Thing. It's not my thing. Yeah. So I think on a musical is going to be overrated just because I don't like it's musicals. It's not my thing. But I think because of the musical, now Hamilton himself has become way overrated among the founding fathers. Like there are many other founding fathers who I think are, are more significant and more important and actually had uh, uh, stronger, more important, lasting influence on the country.
0: Mm hmm interesting and not unfair not an unfair characterization i don't disagree especially if you come from a more uh, a different i don't know political inclination than those who hamilton is kind of the father of their form of thought mm-hmm. but um also it took me to like those 20 be. words to get to the point of that sentence Brad I don't want you to ever say the word Hoomst on a mic again <laughs> I had to hear that I had to hear that in my ears who and that, that was very very disrespectful, very disrespectful. Um,
3: I guess Brad will drive about? us closer and closer into an opinion podcast Exactly. I'm trying <laughs> like, <laughs> very hard
0: to thread the needle here so I'm going to ignore that question regardless um,
4: <laughs> I mean, this is an honest question I don't. Hamilton fell into obscurity for nearly two centuries Before this came out, before the Ron Chernow biography came out,
0: yes, and then the musical.
4: So he doesn't really have a a mark on a clear mark on ideological well on trends, any sort of more just a pop culture thing,
0: any sort of financial like the U.S. financial system he had a huge hand in developing and forming huge hand.
4: Oh, absolutely. That's different. Than and even a, the Federalist Papers we're talking That's about. Yes, but he
0: he okay, we are getting into such weeds here. But even the Federalist Papers talking about how many he wrote is unbelievable. And the Federalist Papers versus the Anti-Federalist Papers have a huge impact on how the country was formed.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I'm not arguing that. I'm I'm arguing that
0: I'm not saying he's like uh,
4: My question was about who The
0: Madison of the Constitution. I'm he, saying sorry go ahead
4: who he influences ideologically because i i don't think that's other you're, than, other than him you're right
0: you are such a nerd you should i should not have to defend this position to you
2: phenomenon <laughs> at the moment you that's, are such a nerd that's going to go into the, the little clips that i have
0: perfect that's really good <laughs> well, but you, you are f- i don't understand why we're having this conversation because he is the father of a lot of what became the U.S. financial system. I'm not arguing that.
4: He had absolutely had an effect on the founding of the country, but you said people who... Um, certain ideologies today, he has an effect on, but he he fell into obscurity, at least as the current makeup of, you know, who's a Republican, who's a Democrat, who's a conservative, who's a liberal. As well, that developed, well, he didn't really have any effect on, on what that became today because nobody
0: wow
3: seriously you're <laughs> <laughs> every history teacher i ever had put hamilton and jefferson at opposite poles as more and less government yeah and i don't know when this book came it out this is a recent thing so <laughs> well you know what? i'm just gonna stop trying to explain this well i get what you're saying but i feel like it's it that does predate whatever book this is because I, I heard about hamilton when i was like a sophomore yeah and i think turno came out in
4: the 90s i think so it's a in in the, the broadscape of this country it's a very recent thing that hamilton became this <laughs> massive figure. Uh, I all
0: right. Interesting. I don't I don't necessarily agree with that, but I understand he's not like your your jefferson, your madison, your franklin jefferson your washington. Jefferson had,
4: had a clear effect on the ideological trend all through up to today.
0: Totally agreed, but he also hamilton pre- did not have that. But he also was president. Right. I'm not arguing.
2: Okay, <laughs> and here's my point. We should have a musical about Oliver Ellsworth, not Alexander <laughs> Hamilton.
0: That's Like, fun. if you're going to lift These someone up okay.
2: from a more obscure position, because Hamilton was, was not president like Thomas Jefferson, yeah. James Madison. So, if we're going to lift up one of the founding fathers, why don't we lift someone up who's cooler?
0: Okay. And you would suggest... Oliver Ellsworth. There you go.
2: Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, Daniel, I think we should, on the Texans uh, time and dime, I think you should start writing a musical.
2: Okay. Like, sure. And we can pick
0: the top three founding fathers (laughs) and go from there. We can produce them. We can hold little shows here at the office, bring in, I'm sure, huge crowds of people to watch us perform.
2: I'm, I'm not going to perform in a musical.
0: <laughs> it's okay. You're right. That, that's your contribution. Yeah. Brad can sing his uh, Greek letter alphabet song, and um, we can go from there.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Brad doesn't want to do that. No. <laughs> 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 um, well, Isaiah or Hayden, do either of you have opinions on Hamilton, the musical or otherwise?
3: Well, um, I'll admit uh, to some shame that Hamilton is one of those things where I just took a look who liked Hamilton and what else they tended to like. And it was in the same cultural corner as like John Green and Disney nostalgia. And I thought, I'm probably not going to like this. It's
0: not quite your, again, it's not your thing.
3: Not my, didn't seem like it'd be my thing. And I say this having not seen a single minute of it. I did have a uh, a history teacher. Like I alluded to before, who absolutely loved the musical. I have a feeling she really liked Hamilton too. And um, she also leaned on John Green quite heavily. (laughs) uh for her lessons and uh so i thought like oh this isn't gonna work and then it turned out to be I, I what i heard from her i didn't like and additionally like daniel i'm not a big fan of musicals with the big exception of filler on the roof i think that's great oh but Trey i haven't Dishon. heard a musical other than yeah yubby dibby <laughs> and i haven't heard a musical other than that one that uh i've taken to as much so okay
0: that makes sense they're quite fun i like them I'm not as much of a musical nerd as a lot of other folks I was homeschooled with are, but regardless, Hayden, any opinion?
1: I just got to say, no matter how you believe, as far as what influence Alexander Hamilton has today, or whether that's a recent phenomenon, he died in a duel, which is an incredibly lame way to die. <laughs> so, <laughs> how that's is the
0: it? Of that. I know. <laughs> it's actually kind of one of the cooler it's parts. It's basically
1: like, Okay, you can shoot me with a gun. I mean, I don't, I, don't, I just I think do that's agree that th- incredibly <laughs> dumb. I do, agree And to th- be killed by the vice president, like he wasn't <laughs> even killed by the president. He died in a duel with the nation's second in charge. So I, I just think that's a huge mark against Alexander <laughs> Hamilton. And for that reason, I'm just enraged by this whole conversation. Wow. Mm.
4: wow. The rules of dueling were pretty weird. Like you just walk 10 steps in one direction each way and... Then fire a gun on each other. No, like Honestly, when I a was duel of swords is far more skillful
1: when I was in grade school or middle school. I don't know. And I first learned about the concept of a duel. I'm just like, it's so stupid. It feels like a total you gamble. Just, you turn your back to someone and then it's basically whoever is able to shoot first gets to kill you. I, or I, you can opt to shoot in the air,
0: which is entirely odd and self-defeating I I don't know either you shoot in the air and you're the honorable one but you get shot or you both shoot in the air and there was no point for the duel whatsoever or you both shoot at each other and maybe both of you die. I
1: I can't I can't even and honestly I can't even remember as I sit here why they were dueling I'm sure that it was not worth getting shot over whatever it was so that's that's my official position on duels not that anybody asked about that at all but I Mm -hmm. felt like it should be stated
0: yeah
2: we should have a duel with Nerf guns.
1: Well, you shoot me with a Nerf gun all the time. Yeah, it's so no, like I a one-sided like, duel.
2: Yeah, and I'm saying we should make it fair. I'll I'll let you have to let me have my own to shoot Nerf, Nerf gun.
1: You. Okay, I agree. Hmm. Mac, are you up for this? Uh, what am I up for? An Sorry, office-wide. Well, we're talking duel? about Daniel Daniel and I dueling, but we yep. we could just have a, a Nerf gun war. Well, as
0: long as it's yeah, as long as it's Nerf guns, I'm way good i do have a nerf gun in my drawer i forgot about mm-hmm. that nerf gun i mm-hmm. need to use it more often well this has been entirely unproductive which is the usd sta- yes brad didn't,
4: i would like to give my opinion on the original topic the original question i thought you
0: already did did you not
4: no you are <laughs> oh a okay brad. point that you made the of a comment that you made
0: no you okay i'm not gonna Okay, I'm going to choose to bite my tongue and not argue with you about this, and I will absolutely open the floor for All you. Right. Please, please bless us with your opinion
1: yeah. and, and thought.
2: I don't see you biting your tongue. Just There's,
1: there's literally sarcasm dripping from our microphone right now.
2: <laughs> I think
4: that despite the historical inaccuracies of Hamilton, that the current state of today's civics education is so bad that anything that gets people excited to learn about the founding fathers is a net good um even if it's you know a musical and i admit i I like the music it's interesting um my dad who's a massive history buff loved listening to it uh so um we to listen to that on our road trip moving down here to texas so
2: oh that's awesome i
4: think it's it's a good thing, even though I have not watched it, and I will probably not watch it. Um, but Hamilton himself was a an incredible man with horrible flaws. Like, the motor he had was insane. Um, the
0: motor? You mean the, like, uh, discipline or ambition? Yeah, yeah.
4: yeah. Uh, to just work, work, work. Um, but luckily... There was someone in his life, George Washington, to provide a rudder to that. Otherwise, it would be directionless and just quite destructive. So that is my opinion on Hamilton uh, and the musical itself, separate from the bout that we had earlier on the subtopic of whether Hamilton has influenced the current political ideologies.
1: I agree with that, though. Like you saying that it's a net good because otherwise, I mean... I am not generally interested in musicals, but you're right when you say people don't know enough about the founding fathers because a lot of our everyday vernacular and a lot of the things that we take for granted do have to do with the views of founding fathers. So even if it's a musical, yes, it's I very, appreciate very that true.
0: perspective very, very much and totally agree. I think it's a net positive.
4: Wow. That's a drastic change from the way you started letting me answer that question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but Brad, I never know with
4: your disdain
0: for you yes oof so sorry about it that's Very not bad. true brad's grandma i really appreciate your grandson okay on that note everyone i love you. the spontaneous <laughs> shout out to his grandmother
4: <laughs> <laughs> she's just doing damage control
0: i just really want to make sure <laughs> she clean knows. up from the last 20 minutes <laughs> that's exactly right oh boy well this has been quite the fun topic folks thank you for bearing with us if you've made it to the end of this podcast we applaud you vigorously and we will catch you next week Thank you all so much for listening. If you've been enjoying our podcast, it would be awesome if you would review us on iTunes. And if there's a guest you'd love to hear on our show, give us a shout on Twitter, tweet at the Texan news. We're so proud to have you standing with us as we seek to provide real journalism in an age of disinformation. We're paid for exclusively by readers like you. So it's important we all do our part to support the Texan by subscribing and telling your friends about us. God bless you and God bless Texas.